0: Hey, we're going to jump right into this morning's message today, and we're kicking off a new series. And I want to just ask you a question as we start. What is your favorite book? What's your favorite book? Maybe list it in the comments section. It could be a kid's book, a book you're currently reading, something that has maybe shaped you. But let us know, what's your favorite book? And if you're not a reader, maybe, maybe it's like, what's your favorite article? <laughs> what's your favorite cartoon or comic book? Uh, something like that. But that'd be really cool to hear. And the reason I'm asking you that question is because because if you had the, um, if you if you knew what or thought of what the the most popular or most sold book in the world would be, um, recently these days, what do you think it would be? Well, I was, I was curious, and I was searching this, and I came across this article back in 2005, about 15 years ago, from The New Yorker, and it was called The Good Book Business, and it tried to help uh, understand why the Bible is sold so often. Now, it was particularly in an American context and kind of the data that came from the U.S., but this line jumped out to me from the author. He said, the familiar observation that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time obscures a more startling fact, that the Bible is the best-selling book of the year every year. Now, this was 15 years ago. Maybe some things have changed, and this isn't an American context, but it made me realize, wow, that's pretty impressive. And back in, back in that time, Americans alone purchased 25 million Bibles in that year. That was two times as much as whatever Harry Potter book came out that year. Around that time as well, 90% of American households owned at least one Bible, and the average uh, owned about four. And yet, in that year, 25 million more people bought a Bible. And it it made me think, like, okay, the Bible's popular, it gets purchased, and maybe you have a couple sitting around in your home. But it made me wonder, like, is the Bible understood as much as it is popular? Is the Bible known as much as the copies we have maybe sitting around. And for some of you watching today, maybe you don't own a Bible or you're very new to the Bible and, and you have these questions about how the Bible works and, and, and how best to read it. It amazes me at times, and this often comes from Christians and churches where you'll hear you know, a preacher or someone say something like, the Bible has the answer to your problems. So all of a sudden, we view the Bible as like an answer book, as a a solution to every problem we have. And if you've taken the Bible hiking with you and you needed to know how to get around the bend, you're like, oh, the Bible doesn't actually help me with that problem. And maybe you've you've come to figure, well, what does that mean? Or maybe you've heard a preacher say something like, the Bible is a manual. You know, like you open it, like if you want to learn how your car works, you open the manual. I rarely open the manual, except recently when I ran out of oil and I had to figure which oil I needed. But sometimes they say, well, it's a manual. And then it becomes you fill in the blank. It's a manual on how to, I don't know, have a good marriage or, um, you know, be a healthy uh, single uh, vocation, or maybe in how to do better at work or how to use our money. And some people have resorted to leaving the Bible feeling like this. And I want to start a series today, and we're calling it the practice of scripture. And my heart and my goal here is that it would help us over the next few weeks see the Bible for what it is and maybe even see the Bible for what it isn't and learn to read it better and grow from it and practice as Christina mentioned it earlier what it means to practice the scriptures or read and grow with it Gordon Fee wrote this book and the title of his book is called reading the Bible for all it's worth great title Great uh, phrase for what we're talking about the next few weeks. In fact, it's a great book to read if you want to read it. Several years back, about 10 years ago, I was doing a master's at at Concordia University, and it was in theology, and I had a teacher. Her name was Pamela Bright. Her and her husband were like world-class scholars in what's known as patristic studies. So they really were deeply immersed in the first few centuries of the church. And I remember having a class with her, and she was talking to us at the beginning of the semester on how to read the texts that we were assigned and how to read it better. And so she told us, here's the best way to do that. They said, read through the preface or the introduction, read through the conclusion, then skim through the table of contents and see if there's any shifts in the book that take place. Maybe read the opening paragraph or closing paragraph of some important chapters and then go back and read the whole book. And her, her purpose in this was helping us understand if we can understand the direction of the book we're reading, we will be able to get the most out of it. And that's how we're starting off today to understand the direction of the Bible. Now, just to be super clear, the Bible isn't a novel. The Bible isn't a textbook. The Bible isn't even, is not even a manual. Now, it is made up in a few different ways. The Bible that I have in my hand, which has obviously been translated into English, we, we, we would see that, at least as Christians, there's two volumes in this book. And each volume is a collection of books and letters and poetry. And there's over 40 authors that have contributed to these two volumes and written over 1,500 years. Now, I don't want to get into the technical stuff this week, and we'll, over the course of this series, kind of bring some important stuff to light. But the key thing that I want to work on today is this, that we could be able to figure out which part of the Bible we're reading and where it fits in the whole picture or the whole story. I was reminded about how important understanding where things fit in. Just this week, my daughter is exploring kind of like what vocation or career she wants to go in. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because then she might get bombarded with a bunch of questions. But she called me this week uh, and she said, Dad, I I spoke to the the guidance counselor at school and uh, we were talking about what I want to do and where I want to head. And she was telling me, you know, just the different pieces of this journey in college and university and possibly a master's later and some things. And she was telling me that in university, I probably have to take some psychology courses, some linguistic courses, and some statistics courses. Now, I don't know about you, but no one just takes statistics to take statistics, right? Like uh, maybe, uh, maybe a bit of psychology, maybe a bit of linguistics, but each on their own, I doubt there's that much maybe passion just for that piece of it. And it would leave Julia wondering, like, why am I in this course? But it was incredible because as she was describing to me the journey of this vocation, it didn't it seemed that she was starting to realize, oh, maybe psychology and statistics fit in to the big picture. And that's partly how I want to help us start understanding the Bible. There's a story in Acts chapter six and seven. It's a church leader, his name is Stephen. And um, Stephen is confronted in a really difficult moment. He is arrested for his faith and uh, he, is, he, is, he is confronted by the religious leaders and they're going to kill him. They're going to stone him. And there's a, a moment in this, in, this, in this story in Acts 6 and 7 where he's questioned, you know, why are you doing this? Why have you committed your life to Jesus? Why have you put your faith in him or are you loyal to him? And Stephen's answer is amazing. Read it for yourselves he goes back and he tells the story of God's work over history. And he tells the story of Israel, of Abraham and Moses. And he comes to this moment to help them understand that what he's doing in that moment and why he's become faithful to Jesus is part of God's bigger story. There's uh, an author, his name is Tim Mackey, and some of you might know who he is. He's produced these incredible videos with a partner of his called The Bible Project. In fact, I often tell people, if you could never read a Bible dictionary, a commentary, or do deeper studying the Bible, watch The Bible Project videos because it'll help you read the Bible for yourselves. But here's their tagline. I love their tagline. Their tagline is helping people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. An amazing description of what we're talking about today. John Goldenday, an incredible Old Testament scholar, says this, he says, the biblical gospel is not a collection of timeless statements such as God is love, but it's a narrative about things God has done. Here's one more quote from an author and a book that truly like, shaped my understanding and reading of scripture 10 or 15 years ago. His name is Robert Weber, it's passed away since. And he wrote a book called The Divine Embrace. And, and he writes this in this book. He says, I invite you to read the Bible, not for bits and pieces of dry information, but as the story of God's embrace of the world. Now, if you're just learning about Christianity or maybe interested in Christianity, but even if you've been following Christ for a long time, I like what Weber says here. He says, all spiritualities are based on a story. And Christianity is a spirituality that's based on God's story. So here's what I want to do for a chunk of this message today. I want to tell you God's story. Once upon a time, those familiar words when you open up a kid's book, or Genesis 1 says, in the beginning. And in the beginning, God created the world. And God created humanity. It's an an incredible start of this story where humans, you and me, are the pinnacle of God's creation. In fact, we're called image bearers. We're created in God's image. God wanted to create his creation or want his creation, like you and me, to have his likeness, to bear his image. And if you can imagine the world and the universe as an incredibly big temple and God, who is sovereign, wants his image bearers to, be ref- to reflect him in his temple. That's you and me. And everybody we lock eyes with, actually, has been created in God's image. And we reflect God's image inside his creation. This is how the story tells us this happens. It says in Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Check out this short little poem here. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them now, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. You know, we can't get into this because I want to tell the whole story, but God created you and me for relationship. Humanity, is hyper-relational. And even in these few phrases, we get this understanding that, that God has created us to be in relationship with him. And if you read in Genesis 1, God walks with Adam in the garden. He's relating with him. God's created us to be in relationship with each other. Eve is created as a companion to Adam together, and they procreate, and we start reading them as them. They are given dominion. They are given responsibility over the world together. And then we get this obvious that I just mentioned. They're given responsibility over what? Over creation. God gives them stewardship of of his creation. He's created you and me to be in relationship with him, with each other, and with the world. And the rest of God's story does not make sense without this origin. Now, you can debate whether there's a literal creation, a day-by-day creation, a, an evolutionary uh, creation, if the Big Bang happened, or uh, you know, how intelligent design works. Just as a side note, which maybe we might highlight later, we're dealing with an ancient Near Eastern text written to ancient Near Eastern people in an ancient Near Eastern time. So it's not going to work exactly like our scientific textbooks and our chicken soup for the soul books. It wasn't written that way. But regardless of where you land on this, God's story is about communion with him and community with others. But here's something that happens as the story progresses. Adam and Eve choose their own path instead of God's. And they rebel against God. They disobey God's command to not touch the tree of knowledge in the middle of this garden where God has placed them. And that act of disobedience, that act of rebellion, cracks creation. Creation is cracked. Later, the Bible would call their action sin. And theologians often call it the fall of humanity. Because that act, that sin, distorted or broke that image that we were created in. Or that purpose to be in relationship with God, with each other, and with the world. And if you're watching for the first time, even if you're just understanding the Bible or you're skeptical about it, I bet that you feel when you look at the world, there's a brokenness in a relationship with God, with others, and with the planet. But we get this. Humans are hyper-relational. But you know what? Sin is hyper-relational. Because it breaks and distorts the intended relationships that you and I were created for. So instead of allowing Adam and Eve to live in this brokenness forever, God sends them out of the garden and begins this rescue project, this redemption project. And it's incredible because he starts to do it in community. We'll often call it a covenant community because he starts with a people. Now, after a few chapters, humanity is spiraling down. Genesis 3 to 11, God, and, but what happens is in chapter 12, God forms a community. He starts the beginning of a community, a covenant community with himself. And part of his plan is restore cracked creation. Think about it this way. Read this line with me off the screen. He uses relationship to restore relationship. He uses relationship to restore relationship. And he starts with Abraham. This guy named Abraham in Genesis 12 where he this person Abraham who was part of a tribe and a family in the ancient Near East discovers who God is. God reveals himself to him and he chooses to use Abraham to build a nation, a community of people that would be in covenant relationship with God. And he says this in verse two, in chapter 12, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. God starts this rescue project with Abraham to make him into a nation, to bless the nations of the world. His seed would be the key to God's restoration project. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob becomes has 12 kids, and these the, the sons are the, the, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, and this nation grows in relationship with God. Now Israel is imperfect, and they mess up often, like you and me. But God is committed to them in this relationship. And He works with Israel, and He leads them, and He guides them, and He corrects them as well, and He provides for them, and He shows them His covenant love, and sometimes He brings discipline to them because His heartbeat is that they would be a witness to the world around them. Now, you read the 450 pages of that part of the Bible, basically most of the Old Testament, and you will find it's a roller coaster ride with this community. There's some amazing high moments, right? God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, an incredible template in how to live well in this world. God rescues them from slavery out of Egypt. God gives them this promised land. God nurtures them if they're, when they're listening to be this amazing alternate community of justice and compassion and grace and mercy in the middle of a militaristic and violent world. But man, there's some low moments. Abraham lies about his wife. Moses kills somebody. David commits adultery. Israel splits into two nations. They're tempted along the way of their journey to be like everybody else. And here's the sad reality. As this part of the story continues, Israel never fulfills their vocation to be God's light in the world. But there's something coming around the corner. It's kind of like something over the rainbow if you think of the flood in Noah's day. There's something coming and God has this plan and it has to do with Abraham's seed because out of the line of Israel, here comes God's one and only son to do what, Jesus, to do what Israel couldn't do. This is this beautiful climax of the story. We see act one and act two and act three. And here in act four, this climax of the story where Jesus the Christ comes in the picture. He announces God's kingdom, and he, 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 he's, we're told that He's going to save people from their sins. And the freedom and justice and compassion and grace that the prophets told us that God's community and God's kingdom was meant to be like is reflected in Jesus' life and actions and teachings. In fact, Jesus was unwrapping right before our eyes through His life and through His teachings and through His death and through His resurrection. All that God longed for humanity. Jesus was the best representation of humanity ever seen. And it came through Abraham's seed, it came through the story. The people of Israel produced a person. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that that person, that seed was Jesus. And Jesus would come and he'd restore this cracked creation, these broken relationships. Paul tells us in one of his letters to the church that hostility between us and God and us and each other has been broken. Paul tells us in another letter that, that we can be a reconciled humanity, breaking all the barriers of status and race and gender, that we are one in Christ Jesus. And it amazes me because as the story unfolds, these earlier parts of the story, like the cracked creation, become the backdrop of the New Testament. And God didn't allow Adam and Eve to remain in a broken state forever. Their sin would mean death physically and spiritually, but God's gift would mean new and eternal life. And Jesus brings that right to the forefront for us. Scott McKnight lists it this way in one of his books. He talks about how the, the, Jesus' death and resurrection is so key to understanding this part of the story. Think about this. I'll just list it on the screen. Jesus dies with us. Jesus dies instead of us. Jesus dies for us. And Jesus rises ahead of us, breaking the curse of death, securing the promise of life. Robert Weber says it in one beautiful line. He says, God came to us in Jesus so we could come to him through Jesus. I love that line. But the story continues. And it amazes me because as we walk through the story, God still seems to prioritize community. And so these early followers of Jesus post his resurrection, Jesus commissions them and they become the church. This is Act 5 in the whole story. Jesus commissions his followers after the resurrection to make disciples. To listen and follow his teachings, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to create communities around the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. These communities that we see in the book of Acts and that Paul writes to in the first century is incredible because these communities become outposts of God's kingdom, light posts in a dark world, signposts to like how we pointing us to God's future. The church is brought together and created to be these signposts and light posts and outposts. And these people wouldn't be alone. Jesus promised his disciples, and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower, to convict, to lead, to guide, to comfort. And it comes up this way. It's summed up in one word that we would be his witnesses. So the church became these communities that were Christ's community and Christ's Communicators, this, this is amazing because that's, this is you and me. Like we're in act five of the story. We're living in this now. Since the days of Jesus and post the resurrection, we are part of these communities that the Holy Spirit birthed together to be an outpost and a signpost and a light post. To be community and communicators. In some ways, some theologians call it a recapitulation. It looks a little bit like what God was doing in Israel, but partly a fresh expression with fresh power. Now, just like Israel, the church isn't perfect, wasn't, isn't, and won't be in the time being, but God would use imperfect people, kind of like he did Israel, to be light and salt in this world. In fact, it's a continuation. God's plan didn't necessarily change, but it's coming into fulfillment. And we get to be part of this part of the journey. But we're not talking about the church today. We want to continue the story. So here's the deal there's one last part here, and it's God's end game. Not the Marvel Universe Endgame, God's Endgame. It's on the horizon. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans eight that creation hungers for this full redemption and restoration. He says the creation waits, the eager expectation of the children of God to be revealed. God promises that Jesus would return as reigning king of God's kingdom. God's purposes of of creation are finally realized. And if you read the end of the story in Revelation 19, 20, or 21, we see that God cre- or uh, brings together the new heaven and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, and that his image bearers that were cracked, but now restored in Jesus, are fulfillment of his purpose, his desire that humans and humanity would flourish. no peer, No tears, no pain, no fear. God's promise coming to a big fulfillment in new creation. And as we read that, that's, this is the whole story. I guess I should just say like the end. But it's not really the end because the end is kind of like a new beginning into the future. But what a great story. That's the story of the scripture. That's the framework where when we open any part of our Bibles, whatever part we read, it always fits within the framework of this beautiful, incredible story that we find in, yeah, this this two-volume collection of 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the story now within the story, there's a lot of little stories and there's different kinds of genres like history and poetry and wisdom and parables and gospel and teaching, but they all fit within the story. So why did I start like this today? Like, why didn't, I, why didn't we get into maybe some obstacles or some questions? And I started like this today because I want to help us read the Bible through this lens of story. And, and here's why. Just a few quick reasons as we wrap up. The first thing is that story is an important framework because that's how the Bible is laid out. We, We can see it as God's story coming to fruition. Now, most denominations over the years, centuries, have formed around like an experience or a discovery. You know, Augustine in the 4th century felt like the church was lacking something, so he highlighted something, and that became something they latched onto. And Luther found something the church was lacking or maybe doing wrong, and he brought something, and so now the church latched around that, or Calvin did the same thing, or Menno Simmons, or John Wesley, or the Pentecostal movement starting in the early 19th century is like, we're missing the work of the Holy Spirit. And what happened was, these figures over history, which were so helpful for us in many ways, would almost force us to read the the Bible in their lens, in their discovery, in what was missing, and then not seeing the whole story. But I want us to, I want to encourage some, something with you today. Story trumps system. So all these people have often led the church to read the Bible through a system lens. And, and here, here's what has helped me when you read the Bible as story, when you come up with a tension in the scripture, the story of the Bible helps you deal with the tensions. But you know what systems do? When systems come up to a tension, they break. They crack. They put you in a weird position. You're like, oh, I, I got to do this or I got to do that. And sometimes the Bible confronts us in that way. But most often when we can see the scripture as a story, sometimes there's some tensions that we can live with or work through. But when we only see the Bible as a system, those tensions become like a roadblock. We can't get past it. And then the person that's viewing it with another system, we're like, no, you're not a Christian or you're not a Christian. But when we come back to the story, here's the beautiful thing. Every system that has been created over centuries should always submit to the story of Scripture, not the other way around here's another thing to think about when you start reading the scriptures in this way it's progress it's progressive now don't get me wrong i'm not talking about like cultural progressiveness in that way i'm talking about the bible progressing through story and you and i learn from every part of the story but i'm pretty confident and we'll get this later on in the series you don't copy every part of the story you don't mimic every part of the story because you recognize the story progresses. Jesus came after Moses, the Spirit came after Jesus, the church came after Israel. There's a progression, right? I was thinking about this is how how do we have this image in our mind? So uh, I'm going to invite you over to my house for a meal. I'm a bad cook, so get ready for that. So I'm thinking like I have on my my counter like all these ingredients. I'm cutting up vegetables and maybe I have some meat in the side or something. I'm going to make some kind of casserole or something like that. So I'm preparing all this stuff and I'm cutting up all these things and I'm mixing it all together and I'm throwing it in a pan. And now I've done this. Here's part one or if we go to part actually zero, it's all this stuff is either grown in fields or whatever. So I set this up. Now, I take that and I put it in the oven. Now, wouldn't it be weird? Once I put it in the oven, it's a completely different thing than it was on my table. But I mean, it's still the same ingredients. It's just the next step. So I'm not going to treat what's in the oven the same way I treated the ingredients on my counter. Now, here's the next thing. I'm going to take that once it's done and cooked and you're at my table and I'm going to bring it to you and I'm going to cut it up and I'm going to. Portion it, and you're going to have now on another table, you're sitting down with this awesome, awesome thing that I cooked. Of course, it's going to be awesome, maybe. Anyways, you're there, and now you're like, you don't treat that thing on your dish the same way that we treat it in the oven, and you don't treat the thing in the oven the same way you treat it on the counter, because it's progressed to get to the table, and we understand that. It's all part of the same big thing and it's all the same ingredients, but it's moved through a process. And I think that's helpful when we understand how we read the early creation narrative and the story of Israel and the climax of Jesus and the story of the church and the new creation. It's progressive, it moves. But it's also one more thing, it's a fulfillment. The later parts of the story fulfill the former parts of the story. And Jesus fulfilled Israel's vocation. And Jesus was, was Abraham's seed. And the church becomes the continuity of God's work with Israel in Christ and now the church. It's fulfillment. When we read it as story, we see the fulfillment taking shape. And then the last thing, and here's how we'll close. When we read it as story, there's an invitation to you and me. The story invites us in. The story invites us to, into the whole of what God wants to communicate to us, but it also invites us into the part that we land in and the part that we're playing and what comes before us and what comes after us. And it invites us to live out God's story in our day, in our age. Robert Weber, when he wrote that book, The Divine Embrace, he completely changed his introduction and and part of the book because he was having a conversation with a few friends of his in an apartment in his city, and a bunch of them were agnostics and atheists. And they were asking about spirituality and then asking about Christian spirituality. And in that moment, he said, you know what, can I tell you a story? And he went off and told them a story, a version of God's story, similar to what we did today in a much briefer time. And they listened to this story. And Weber says that at the end of it, a few of those people in the room were like, I got it, I got it, I understand it. And then there was a pause. And one or two of them said, what do I do now? Because they felt the invitation of this story and they're wondering, not, well, what do I do next? How do I embrace this? How do I welcome this? How do I enter it? And this is a beautiful part of understanding the scriptures as God's story because God's story is inviting you in. And maybe you've been so fam- overly familiar with the Bible for years but haven't read the Bible, a story, and I want to encourage you to read it with the story in mind. But for all of us, regardless if you're just exploring faith or been following Christ for many years, we're all invited in to God's story, to embrace it, to welcome it, and to look at the climax of the story, Jesus, to respond and to enter and to follow. That's my invitation to you as we start the series to hear the invitation of the story of God in the scriptures because God's inviting you in and he wants to dramatically change your life as you interact with his story in fact you even become part of the story as you welcome him in and as you respond let's pray our heavenly father what an amazing story you have been writing and we're so grateful that as we hold the scriptures in our hand that many eras of your people did not have access to in this way. We hold this story in our hands. We say thank you. Thank you because you, have, you show us through this story your divine embrace, your welcome, your invitation. But we acknowledge through the story the brokenness that we feel, and the brokenness in our world. And we're grateful that part of your story includes your redemption and rescue and restoration. Oh God, for some of us, including me, that have read the Bible maybe over the years, God, may we come to it in fresh ways, seeing the great story. And God, for some that are listening today, maybe for the first time, or just learning how to read the Bible, oh God, I pray that they would hear the invitation of your story right now. And that would just entice them, interest them, attract them, God, to immerse themselves in your story by reading, learning, and growing, but ultimately hearing your invitation in this. God, and I pray for a a response of faith and trust to you, to your son, Jesus. God, you came to us in Jesus so we could come to you through Jesus. And we see this as part of your story. And may we move towards it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.